0: CLS is The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed.
1: CLS is The Weighing Machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, Emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it, and as always, please let us know what you think.
0: On the podcast today, we'll review CLS portfolio performance, what's hurt and what's helped, and what do we expect from the future.
1: We will also discuss CLS investments, high conviction, market views, and developments in the race to zero. That's with our guest, Senior Portfolio Manager and Co-Director of Research, Koshi Edis. Plus, my interview is with Chris Romano, quantitative portfolio risk manager with Orion Advisor Services. Welcome to CLS's weighing machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman.
0: and I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. How did the markets fare in September?
1: It was a curveball. September is usually pretty weak historically. On average, it um, is down. Doesn't mean it's always down, of course. But it was actually a pretty good month in the end. What was really interesting about the month, though, is that it was a reversal of what had been working earlier in the year. Actually were the laggards, and what had been trailing actually did well. The biggest example is that value stocks were up 5% last month, while growth stocks were down between 1% and 2% on average, so that was a pretty big reversal. On the year-to-date numbers, and we're going to break this down a little more in the podcast, but value stocks have been lagging this year, but value stocks are up 17% year-to-date to the end of last month, and I think a lot of people think the performance of value has really been lacking, And but 17% return year-to-date is not bad. Uh, other things that stand out, international slightly outperformed U.S. stocks last month. Um, and the other thing that I thought kind of stood out is the bond market. Right after people love the bond market as much as they have in years, it actually generated a loss last month. It's funny how that always works. Right. Yeah.
0: So, okay, it's hey, generally— I, One more thing. I just yeah. went to
1: one thing. And speaking of sentiment, right now as we go into the last three months of the year— uh, There's a lot of different sentiment surveys on individual investors when it comes to the U.S. stock market. And one of the granddaddies is called the AAII, the American Association of Individual Investors, and they have weekly data that goes back decades. Anyway, uh, the latest survey that came out just a day before this podcast is that it was some of the most negative sentiment we've seen in a long, long time. So that would suggest that we will have below average – I mean, sorry, below – Let me say that again. Above average returns (laughs) over the next one month, three months, six months, and 12 months. And that coincides with the fact we're going into the fourth quarter, which is typically the best quarter. And that also matches up with the fact that the fourth quarter of the third year in presidential cycles is also the strongest. So if you're just looking at technical factors and sentiment factors and seasonal factors, this should be a really great three months. All
0: right. Okay, so it has generally been a good year in the markets, and it's been a good year for CLS portfolios, too, overall. However, in relative performance terms, CLS portfolios haven't beaten their benchmarks so far this year. What happened there?
1: All right, so in my monthly commentary, I wanted to write about sort of the five key characteristics of how to understand how CLS manages risk builds portfolios, and selects securities. It's really the five key attributes of how we do investment management. And and really, all of them have, um, they all from an intuitive standpoint, they all make sense. There's common sense behind them. There's academic support behind all of them. Well, maybe one of them. It's a little more of a jump on. I'll talk about that. But really, um, I just want to talk about it. I mean, we're, having, we're participating in the bull market. Investors have done well with CLS portfolios. But Uh, We have lagged our benchmarks in some cases, so I kind of talked about it. So let me walk about through these five things. Well, first of all is risk budgeting. So we managed to a target risk level instead of a target asset allocation. It's our twist to building balanced portfolios. We think it's a better way for a bunch of reasons we always talk about. But I think this has helped us. I mean, we're in a bull market, uh, one of the, the longest bull market in US history. So the fact that we've maintained a steady risk level has helped. But more importantly is relative to a lot of our competition. I think our competition, like a lot of individual investors, on the margin have been a little more cautious and optimistic. And we have seen that in uh, when we're competing against other managers with similar mandates is that our risk tends to be a little bit higher. Um, it's not that we're being more aggressive, it's just we're managing risk to a target level and everybody else has gotten more defensive. So long story short, that has helped. That's number one. i got four more to go. <laughs> the second thing is uh, we're global and we, we think being global makes sense from a strategic standpoint. When I say strategic, that means long term. If you have a larger investment universe, so if you're not just looking at U.S. stocks, you look at uh, non-U.S. stocks, you have a larger set of securities to work with to enhance returns, and more importantly, to manage risk in a portfolio. And Koshi, who's with us today, has written a lot about this and has a couple different white papers, which are really great. The next thing is diversification. So we are asset allocators. So instead of just building a portfolio of U.S. stocks and bonds, we use a lot of asset classes. And again... All these asset classes bring something different to the table, and again, it's the ability to enhance returns over time, but again, more importantly, to manage risk. and. Because we're risk budgeters, we want all the different tools we can to manage risk to targets. Being diversified has not helped in terms of relative performance. And One great example is uh, one asset class, which is key to many asset allocators, is sort of that real assets bucket when you're looking at commodities or real estate or natural resource stocks. That has generally lagged in recent years. So even if you have a small weight to that, it's made a difference. The next thing is, so risk budgeting is how we manage risk, and being global and diversified is how we really build portfolios, but how do we select securities? And two key things. First of all, we're an active manager. That means we are different than the benchmarks in the way we build portfolios, um, so our returns are different, our portfolios are different, and we do that, of course, to um, tr- try to outperform over time. Active management is, um, that is the one thing over long term, net of fees that is not added value, gross of fees, professional investment have tended to add value but the one thing I want to talk about which is really interesting it's when you have an active manager he or she when they're building a portfolio they're looking at two different securities and they tend to have even though they don't explicitly do this they tend to have an equal weighting when they build portfolios it isn't really equal weighted but it's sort of like hey do I want company A or company B so Long story short, it creates a bias towards smaller companies relative to the benchmarks. So if there's one key thing to look at: if if uh, active managers are beating the benchmarks, is if small caps are beating the market. And small caps have not been beating the market in recent years, and so it has been a headwind for active management. Right now, small caps are the cheapest they've been in nearly two decades. So we think that active management should do well moving forward. Okay, last thing is relative valuation. We talk about that a lot here, and relative valuation is we look at an asset class relative to the overall market, and we just look at that relationship over time. So, a great example is like U.S. stocks trade a, have traded at a 30% premium to non-U.S. stocks over almost the last 20 years. So they're expensive. We could still own them. Let's say they were trading at a 20% premium instead of 30%. We would say they're on sale, and we'd like them. But instead, they're trading at a 60 to 65% premium. So they're expensive. We liked International, and that has not worked in relative terms. International still made its money, double-digit returns, but just not as much. So anyway, those are all significant headwinds. I've got more data, but I need to take a breath and drink some water and let somebody else talk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. To that end, let's bring in our guest, Kostya Edis, who's co director of research, senior portfolio manager, and also an international investing expert. Kostya, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. And I, I will say, Rusty, I loved your comments about you know the bullishness of the fourth quarter. If my wife's spending habits are any indication, the fourth quarter is definitely exactly. when the most money is yep. spent.
1: <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs>
0: All right, well, Kostya, you wrote about this international underperformance that Rusty mentioned in your weekly three that's coming out this week. Is this kind of outperformance by the U.S. markets normal behavior?
2: It's actually not normal behavior. Uh, When you look back through history, you'll notice that European markets, which have been quite a bit beaten up recently, um, have actually uh, outperformed the U.S. consistently on a consistent basis since 1969 all the way up to 2007. After the financial crisis, the US rebounded and excessively. So they've had very strong returns, huge inflows into the US market, and investors have become used to it. There's a kind of a behavioral bias called recency bias. You know, the human brain, um, it puts a lot of emphasis on the things that we remember more recently, on the things that are more easier to remember who can remember what happened 20 years ago We can certainly remember what happened last year and this has really put a lot of upward pressure on the u.s market and it has become quite a bit expensive
0: so does that mean that this tide is eventually going to turn
2: well there is one constant truth in investing and that's that that's that markets are cyclical No one market can perpetually outperform for too long. And investor emotions are really hard to predict, but investors' behavior is pretty consistent over time. People tend to act the exact same way repeatedly, follow the same exact problems. They don't really learn from their mistakes because it's instinctual. So that leads to cyclical markets because as an investment runs up in price, they see that it's running up and they want to participate and they put more and more money into it until it stops working. And then they pull all their money out and it diverges. So the decade before 2009, emerging markets were huge outperformers. Once again, recency bias, nobody really remembers that. But the decade after 2009, as I mentioned, the U.S. has been on a tear. Handily outperforming EM. Um, at some point, we could see a pretty similar turnaround for international. Uh, when you look at the charts that I include in my weekly, uh, it really begs the question: You know, what is the next decade going to bring?
0: Well, global investing is a high conviction view here at CLS. That means it's fundamental to our investment philosophy, but. While the U.S. markets are outperforming to this degree, we have to argue our point a lot with clients and investors sometimes, which is good. It's good to have those debates. But, Rusty, you wrote about this in your monthly review last week. C- can you run through some of those arguments?
1: Yep, yeah, I will. Hey, and just to kind of follow up on some of Kosha's comments as well, I mean, again, as Weekly 3 has a lot of great stats, but is also really involved in our Quarterly Market Outlook, which is coming out soon, our quarterly reference guide. And again, there's some really good one-page materials on some of these points about international investing. but. Uh, there in my monthly, I did attack sort of three different arguments people use. I mean, they're basically the rebuttals against when you say international looks cheap versus the U.S. And there's three common things people say. Yeah, but, and the first one is that you know the U.S. always trades at a premium, so it's no big deal. It's trading at a premium now, and I would. Say well, first of all, that's not actually the case. If you go back a couple decades ago, the U.S. actually did not trade a premium. But let's just say that it does deserve a premium. Um, And right now, as I already mentioned, it's a 30% premium. The base that we look at a, a composite of various valuations going back nearly 20 years. But right now, it's it's at multi-decade highs. So even if it always trades at a premium, it's not been at this premium in a long, long time. So I think that rebuts the first thing. The second thing is, uh, yeah, but you're looking at valuations, but you're looking at historical growth. You're not actually bringing in expected growth. You really need to think about you know, what are expected earnings. Well, no, even if you factor that in, and emerging markets, uh, even you know, if their growth is slowing, if you look at forward earnings, still the US looks very expensive and the most expensive has looked in decades again. The last thing also has truth to it, and actually is a really good argument, um, but again, ultimately it doesn't hold up. And that is when you look at uh, other countries, their economies are different in the sense of what, what, and their markets, what composes them. So in the US, we have heavy emphasis on technology and consumer discretionary stocks, much more so than other countries have. The typical international benchmark has a lot more in financial companies. Um, uh, uh, natural resources. You know, they tend to be more value oriented. And so they should trade, trade at lower valuations, and that is true. However, if you still adjust for all these sector differences, the U.S. is still the most expensive it has been in decades. So you, you rebut the rebuttals, you, international stocks are on sale. Mm-hmm.
0: And well, another high conviction view at CLS, as we've mentioned, as well as value investing, and that has also struggled. Um, so walk us through the argument for value.
1: Well, on the in the value stuff, I mean we I have sort of written about this before, but I guess one of the points that really came through is that value investing has still generated strong absolute returns in recent years, um, double-digit returns. And quite frankly, if the long-term market average is 8 to 10% and you've been a value investor, you've outperformed the long-term averages, so you've done well. It's just that growth investing has done much better. And growth investing is, you know, you could almost argue it could be like in a bubble like it was in the dot-com boom 20 years ago. Value has only underperformed growth um, by... And you can work all these numbers however you want, but um, if you look over the last 12 years, value has only underperformed over a 12-year stretch. Only one, It's underperformed only worse once, and that was in the dot-com era right before value had a significant performance snapback and outperformed growth by a large margin over the next couple of years. It isn't just relative performance, it's relative valuations. And same sort of thing. Um, the relative valuations mean growth and value. The difference has only been this wide twice, once the dot-com era again, and the other time during the Great Depression. And again, both of those times, well, what I already mentioned, value stocks handily outperformed after each period. In September we did see the inflection point. I had that on my opening comments that value stocks rebounded and outperformed growth. But we had some you know completely sensational and dramatic one-day moves like value stocks had one of their best days individual days in 20 years. Momentum stocks had like their worst two-day stretch in a decade. Value versus momentum, value versus quality, all these relationships I mean were just way outside the box. And um, so anyway, it's, it, it's hopefully there's an inflection point, and of course it is my bias because we are tilted towards value stocks.
0: Right. Well, Kostya, taking all of this into consideration, what can we expect from future returns?
2: Well, Robin, as you may know, uh, CLS produces uh, expectation for returns of various asset classes. We call They're typically called capital market assumptions. And we thought it would be a good exercise to compare our expectations to some other notable asset management firms. Um, But to make it simpler, we took an average of eight uh, large firms just to make it simpler to make a comparison. Um, And we ran uh, the comparison for four key uh, broad asset classes. And I'll just touch really briefly on the four. First off, U.S. stocks uh they're overvalued as we've mentioned um there's some growth concerns um cls's projection is for just over two percent um that's a long-term expectation for annual market returns it's bearish certainly relative to long-term historic averages which typically range between 8 and 10%, but still uh, important to remember, it's a positive number, so we're not calling for any severe corrections or bear markets. Uh, The asset manager average is slightly higher, about 3.5%, but it's important to compare these asset classes versus each other. So international stocks, particularly developed markets, um, they're having trouble growing their economies, They've been having accommodative monetary policies, but it doesn't seem to be helping. There's all kinds of geopolitical concerns, Brexit, trade disputes, demographic issues in Japan. Uh, It's really deteriorated quality and raised risk for some of those markets. Our expectation is close to 3%, stronger than the U.S., but still relatively weak the asset manager average is actually quite a bit stronger, double that, at just over 6%. So other asset managers have a bit of a more favorable outlook on international markets as a whole. Emerging markets, on the other hand, It's kind of our highest expected number. They've got attractive valuation, growing economies. They have high interest rates, which is important. If their economies do start to struggle, their governments and central banks can lower interest rates to boost growth. So CLS gives them just over 5% expected return, more than double that of the US. Asset manager average is all the way to 8%. So there's quite a bit of potential there. And lastly, I'll finish off with bonds. They've got super low rates all over the world, flat yield curve. But remember the best predictor of future returns for bonds is the current yield. And bonds do tend to be more favored in a volatile market period. It's kind of like the one we're experiencing now. So our projection is 2%, which is pretty much in line with the asset manager average. So it does seem like CLS is more conservative in their expectations, which I think is generally a good practice. But the most important takeaway from these numbers is that directionally, we do match up with other notable asset managers in that the U.S. has the lowest relative expected returns and emerging markets are the highest.
1: Fascinating stuff. I mean, just to kind of just jump on that too. I mean, Koshi hit on the head. I mean, we, we do think that you know, capital markets may have low average returns. But the thing is, we're risk budgeters, so we're still managing to a certain level of risk. And the big, big thing is, you know, obviously, U.S. investors should manage their expectations, but you can enhance returns by going overseas.
0: Well, finally, Costa, you wrote about some other market news that was less talked about than some of the headlines. Um, two major investment firms eliminated commissions for ETF stock and option trades. More developments in the race to zero that you've written about before. Why is this significant?
2: Yeah, this really uh, was kind of the shot heard around the world. It really hit um, huge news. Um, Everybody has been pretty excited about it. Um, But I'll take a little step back and look at a little bit of history. So with the launch of ETFs, It really started this initial race to zero, as it has become to be known, or fee wars sometimes is referred to. So when two ETFs, which track a similar benchmark, uh, try and compete with each other, there's really little to compete on other than cost. So you have to undercut your competitor, and as more ETFs started coming to market, it They were uh, trying to undercut each other. So fees were coming down, which is great for the end investor. It makes it cheaper to invest. These low costs started taking away market share from mutual funds. So mutual funds started turning their head and saying, hey, this is where the money is. So mutual fund companies started launching more index products, ultra low cost, and even their active products started dropping fees. So net, this has been great for investors, and it kind of came to a climactic moment. Something that, you know, we only joked about, you know, years ago, is that zero-cost funds. Fidelity finally launched zero-cost funds um, recently, and this it was a huge movement for the markets. And it seems naturally that the next transition in this race to zero, what I'm calling, I'm going to coin this, uh, 2.0, race to zero 2.0, can we trademark that, um, is the reduction of trade barriers, uh, which are commissions. So you've got the big brokers like Schwab, TD, Fidelity, and E-Trade that charge commissions for ETF and stock trades. And uh, they actually have recognized this race to zero, and they've been lowering their commissions, coming down from $10 a trade to 7 or 5 uh, but then more recently, there's a small uh, tech uh, startup company called Robinhood. Uh, about five years ago, they started offering commission-free trades, and it really started uh, turning some heads. Uh, Vanguard, J.P. Morgan, uh, they started launching apps with free trades. And then the most recently, uh, last week, Interactive Brokers launched a complete, completely commission-free um, version of their product. And um, this week was the huge news, of course. Schwab said that they're going to go commission-free. And upon that news, TD Ameritrade dropped 25%, 26%, and E-Trade dropped about 16%. Their stock stock prices fell considerably and instantly, aggressively. But then you take a step back and you say, well, why why did they their stock price fall? Well, it's because the market expectation was that they were going to go commission free, too. And it didn't take long. Later that night, TD announced that they were going commission free. And the next morning, E-Trade did also. And it turns out, just so happens, coincidence, uh, the revenues that commissions make up for their businesses are about 28% and 17% respectively, about almost the exact amount that their stock prices dropped. So the market's smart, the market's efficient, and what happened is really tied to what should have happened. Um, I'm expecting that Fidelity will be soon to follow, and the key takeaway from all of this is this removes yet another barrier for investing in the markets and it's a net benefit for and investors and clients.
1: Hey, let's just talk about it a little bit more. So how do these companies now make money? There's a couple ways they can make money if they're not getting off commissions. I mean, one is a common way, like Schwab makes most of their money off of cash. You know, people put cash in their accounts. They Schwab's not really paying them much on it. And obviously, Schwab has actively managed those short-term holdings, so you call it net interest margin. And so Schwab makes a lot of money off investors not being smart about their cash. They're not collecting anything. And so uh, the other thing is that brokers do is they, you know, the order flow. They kind of sell information on order flow to, you know, other people, and the idea that it makes more liquid markets or something like that. So the question could be, is that execution for the individual investor when they do trades could falter a little bit. So, Kosha talked about the benefit, lower explicit fees, but transaction costs could be higher, which basically suggests individual investors should be using limit orders, which we always recommend instead of uh, market orders, which means they're seeing the price they want to do the trade at, but it also bodes well for firms that offer professional trading. People actually watching the screens and pulling off trades. And so, anyway, uh, this news is really big. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna have repercussions that are obviously are immediate, but also long term. There are some business models that you know, some of these firms like Robinhood and Betterment and stuff like that. I mean, part of their value prop is that there are no transaction costs. Well oops that just went out <laughs> but everybody does that yeah. now so business models will be shaken up a little bit
0: so if they're making money from investors leaving their money in cash does that mean that they could potentially be encouraging investors to do that even when it's against their own interests
1: ooh nah that's a good question well if you think about it most brokerages like they they their game is they just want to put information in people's hands Well, actually, they've always put information in people's hands because anybody who has information feels like they have to act on it. It's like, ooh, I just got something. And that would just create more activity, which would create more commissions. So that's not really there as much. That's a good question. I mean, who knows? Let's say if all the the brokers are now saying, like, yield curve is inverted, political uncertainty, geopolitical stuff – you know, there's going to be chaos at movie theaters when they're watching Joker this weekend. <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff that could drive people to cash. I don't know. That's that's that'd be a little bit on the evil side, but who knows? It'd be interesting to watch.
2: There, there's always uh, kind of something happening behind the scenes because these companies. Um, like Schwab and Tiddy, they're not out to give away free money. I think there was some of that controversy surrounding the zero-cost fidelity funds, too. Uh, Vanguard, of course, being the biggest... kind of on the other side of that, um, came out and said, you know, there's other things happening behind the scenes, like SEC lending, that they might not be distributing to clients. So there's always little things, little things. like that.
1: It almost seems that I'm, I'm probably being naive here, but it seems like there could be an opportunity for a brokerage to come out and say, look, we're going to have commissions, but we're not selling order flow. And we're going to pay you more for your cash holdings. You know, I, yeah. seriously, some Definitely. investors, they would pay up for that. Yeah, I'm sure I'm being sure. naive about that. But
2: Wow,
0: well, interesting times. Okay, well, that is going to do it for this portion of the podcast. But before we move on, Coaster, we don't want to let you go without hearing some interesting and good stuff about what we should be expecting at the movies and what we should be looking forward to.
2: Um, thanks. Thanks, Robin. Um, so there uh, are a lot of great movies coming up for this holiday season, and it's also Oscar season, my, my favorite time of the year. There's some great releases coming out. Well, Let's start the movie coming out this weekend, The Joker. That's been very highly anticipated, uh, critically acclaimed. Joaquin Phoenix playing The Joker for the first time. He's got some big shoes to fill. He's following up Jack Nicholson, uh, Tim Burton directed original movie. Obviously, uh, tough to compete with that. Heath Ledger won an Oscar for his portrayal, and he really sunk himself into the character. Um, I read a story where he locked himself in a hotel room for a month, just to create an idea of isolation to prep for the movie. There's a rumor that maybe that caused him to commit suicide, but that's just a rumor. Um, Then uh, we had Jared Leto. I'm not actually gonna talk about that. That was a bit of a dud. But um, I don't think uh, Joaquin Phoenix needed any prep he's kind of crazy to begin with so it really seems like he was made to play this role and it's kind of a perfect for him so i'm pretty excited about that
1: looks awesome yeah
2: definitely um the next one is uh in mid-october uh the movie zombieland i think everybody really liked that one the original cast is back the the second movie called double tap so i love everything with woody harrelson so that'll definitely be a great one then on November 1st, uh, we've got a movie called The Irishman. Have you guys heard of that one? Oh, that, um, I
1: thought that, that was going to be on Netflix or something.
2: Well, uh, Netflix is kind of dipping their toes into the you know major motion picture business here for a uh, wide release. And they actually contributed $100 million to the production of this movie, uh, which gave them the right to stream it pretty early on November 27th. So less than a month after wide release, it's going to be on Netflix. So that's pretty cool.
1: Well, Netflix has some good movies. They had Roma, which was great. And oh, yes, And then actually a movie that people either loved or hated, and I loved it, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, I watched half of that. See, and you're right here. Oh, you missed. And I look. love,
0: I love the Coen Brothers. I absolutely yeah. love everything they do.
1: But I the was last like, story was phenomenal, mind. and like the third to last story was absolutely beautiful.
2: You get I might soon. pick it up again. They we'll did get up. some good actors, but the beautiful thing about this Irishman movie—have you ever wondered, you know, how cool would it be if Robert De Niro and Al Pacino made a movie together? They actually have, they have in the past. Yeah. It's called Heat. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's actually phenomenal. Heat's awesome. They, they made another one called Righteous Kill, but it's so horrible. I, I'm i not <laughs> even going to say anything. Don't even look it up. But also, you know, how awesome would it be if Martin Scorsese reunited with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci to make another mobster movie? I think all of our dreams are coming true <laughs> in this movie. So this is another Scorsese mobster flicks starring all of those amazing actors. Um, so I love Goodfellas and Casino, as you guys know. So this is going to be right up my alley. And if with the $100 million coming in from Netflix, you, you know there's going to be some amazing effects and just a beautiful production value. So I'm pretty excited about that one. Uh, In mid-November, we got a movie called Ford versus Ferrari. It's a story of America building the fastest car in the world. And if you like cars like I do, that's a must-see. But Rusty, I think what is going to appeal to you is that it stars Matt Damon and Christian Bale. And I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've ever seen Christian Bale use his actual voice. So that's, that count me in. then uh, towards late November, this is really where Oscar season he- heats up, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. So get your Oscar ballots out, get your tear ducts ready. This is American <laughs> treasure Tom Hanks plays American treasure Mr. Rogers. And uh, Tom Hanks looked like he was born to wear that cardigan sweater. So it's, Didn't they always
1: do a Mr. Rogers movie? Was it a documentary. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, Last but not least, just in time for Christmas, we have the finale to the current Star Wars trilogy, The Rise of Skywalker. That's December 20th. It's by far the most anticipated movie of the year, guaranteed box office giant. So make sure you put it on your calendar. Pre-order those tickets. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's, that's all it? I got.
0: No Little Women for Christmas Day? You're not excited about that?
2: Um... You know, not as much as the Irishman. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, I'm excited about Little Women. So. They should do a yeah. mashup between Little Women and Irishmen.
1: Yeah. That'll it's work. It's like Jane and with zombies or something. Yeah. Jane Oh, see. That's how I Yeah. Thank you. Is that recorded? <laughs> there was a fun, uh,
2: we were doing like internal videos to celebrate one Orion. And, um, Rusty was asked which movie would look great as a musical and he said Blade Runner. Yeah. And I thought that was that was a unique, unique one. <laughs> I don't know if I could see it as a musical, but it does have um phenomenal music. It does. Yeah. All right. Well
0: that's gonna do it for, for today. <laughs> uh next up, well thanks, Cross Let me okay. say goodbye to you first. Thanks for having it or thanks for coming on the show today. It was fun.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Okay. Next up is Rusty's Q&A, and today he talks to Chris Romano, who is the Quantitative Portfolio Risk Manager at Orion Advisor Services. What did you guys talk about?
1: Well, we talked about a couple different things. First of all, Chris has been with Orion here for almost a couple years. Um, He is a quant, which obviously means he's well versed in all things quantitative management of portfolios, risk management, um, the all technical aspects, which is a very important part of portfolio management moving forward cool thing about Chris is he's very accessible and he is very good at explaining you know key quantitative concepts which most quants are not so I think it's a really good interview, he talked about a couple big things that we're doing here at Orion, um, which we've talked about on the podcast before, one is direct indexing, what it is, why it's important, and why many investors will be using direct indexing in the years ahead. The other thing is theme-based portfolios, so again, sort of related to direct indexing and, and basically kind of building your own portfolios around certain themes. So it is. It's. Um, I would think some people listening to this podcast might even find it more interesting than hearing about movies.
0: Well, big shoes to fill. Let's take a listen.
1: Well, today's guest on CLS's The Weighing Machine is Chris Romano, Quantitative Portfolio Risk Manager at Orion Advisor Services, which of course is a sister company of CLS Investments here. And Chris, you're here because you're working on a couple of super exciting things, things which I think advisors and investors across the land would be really interested to know. But before you get to those really cool things, let's hear about you first of all welcome
3: yeah well thanks a lot Rusty I appreciate it um, I'm glad I got invited onto the podcast
1: yeah darn right <laughs> well tell us tell us about your a uh, little bit about your background
3: yeah I'd be happy to so I guess first you know my my educational background is more uh, computer science based so I graduated with uh, information science background yeah uh, with the expectation that I'd be a developer uh, didn't plan on getting finance um, so my first job out of college was at a startup broker-dealer. Um, there was only five or six people at the firm at the time. Um, so and yeah, this was,
1: where was this at again? This
3: uh, is out yep. of Pittsburgh. Yep. Uh, so where you're from. Where I'm from. And where you still live, yep. Correct. And so, you know, as with most startups, you have to wear a lot of hats. So I was doing some programmings. I had to get um, my Series 7, 66, and 24. Sat on the trade desk for a while uh, as a backup trader. Enjoyed that. Uh, a lot, uh, and then I transitioned to an RAA where I ran all technology as a CTO. Um, so did you know, all the system stuff, programming, but started sitting in on investment committee meetings. Yeah, decided that I like finance a little bit better. I enjoyed you know writing programs to test ideas. Sat for my CFA, um, and then transitioned to another RAA where I ran research and trading for that firm. And it was a. Um, a tactical ETF manager, yeah. uh, very much Fama French influence. So we were building factor models to um, determine what to buy and sell. Yeah. And then um, after that, I transitioned to help launch an ETF um, data and research company. It was a pure startup, ground zero, um, where we took in ETF data, built in a, a research platform, uh, again, f- heavily factor model based, uh, Worked with financial professionals up to large institutions and transitioned here to Orion.
1: And you came to Orion a couple years ago, right?
3: Yeah, uh, a little over a year now, so about 14, 15 months. Yeah.
1: All right, so let's get a couple of these really big things you're working on. So first is this whole concept of direct indexing. What is that, and why is it important?
3: Yeah, you know, there's no common definition of direct indexing. Um, it's kind of like ESG and some factor definitions, right? There's kind of yeah. a little bit of a gray area. But generally, it's taking a, an index and trying to replicate it either fully or partially with the constituents held within that index. So I want to replicate the S&P 500 with yeah. 150 stocks. Um, Sounds fancy, but what's the advantage? Yeah, there, there's a, a couple of different advantages. You know, Part of the advantage is that you actually own the underlying securities, um, so you ha- own those cost basis. And since you own the cost basis, there's two good things you can do with them. Uh, the first is you can harvest losses, um, and then just as important, you can defer gains. Yeah. So on an act- after-tax basis, uh, you can really add value um, to the client by just owning the underlying shares. And so— Product.
1: Like, like index funds inherently are tax efficient because it's low turnover, but when you do direct indexing, again, just to restate what you said, because you own the individual securities at that individual level, you can actually have a better after-tax experience than owning even an index fund.
3: Correct. Yeah, we all know ETFs are very tax efficient, um, but you, you don't have the opportunity to tax loss harvest within the ETF, right, since you don't own it.
1: And that advantage is often referred to as tax alpha.
3: Correct. Which is just another way of saying what? Additional returns driven by managing your taxes better. Yeah, right? it's it's gaining performance by managing taxes.
1: And then, what is a typical tax alpha? I guess it depends on the portfolio.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, where the index is more volatile I- internally, uh, like a small cap, you're going to have higher tax al- alpha opportunities versus the S and P 500. So it's a it's a function of both. Um, the volatility underlying names in kind of the universe, yeah. um, and it's you know it. You know the studies out there, it really is between 75 basis points up to almost two percent. Yeah. Um, so it can be meaningful for a client.
1: Yeah, I've often heard one to two percent tax alpha, and you think about it, that's big because you know the fees in the industry aren't that big, and yeah. the fact that an advisor can help an investor with a direct indexing solution for their taxable accounts and get 1% to 2%. That's their fee and then some, you know, so yeah. in many cases. So again, just kind of say it, so again, it depends on the portfolio, because I, I have heard people say you can just always get 1% to 2% tax alpha, but it really depends. And as you said, a great example is a small cap portfolio relative to large cap. Small cap has more names, therefore more opportunities. Small cap names tend to be more volatile on a standalone basis. Again, more opportunities for tax loss harvesting. And then the small cap names tend to have lower correlation between each other. So again, they're acting differently. Again, more tax loss opportunities, uh, harvesting opportunities.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And then the I would say the, the other part of that is you can put um, restriction overlays, right? So if you work for a technology company and you want to underweight technology, because you have a lot of um, company stock, yep. you can kind of customize those indexes to your needs, you know, ESG overlays.
1: Yeah. Those are massive, if you think about it, because so many people have created their wealth in a certain industry. Maybe they were just always in oil, or just always in technology, or in finances. And if they just buy the market, they have all that exposure. They also have a tendency to buy names within their own sectors. And yep. so the ability to restrict that is, from a risk management standpoint, huge and then ESG what is what again just to uh, restate i think a lot of people probably listening to the podcast know what ESG is but what is ESG and then when it comes to direct indexing i think there's some really awesome things going on in ESG just tell us about that too.
3: yeah so you know ESG or SRI you know ESG's environmental social and governance issues and you know, SRI is socially responsible investing all kind of very similar it's it's more kind of uh, you want your investments to match the values that you have if you don't believe in, you know, carbon, you know, if you believe in carbon footprint, right? So you yeah. may want to overweight companies that have low carbon footprint. That would be kind of an ESG. Or if you want to screen out tobacco companies, you don't want to support tobacco companies. So it's it's all really matching the portfolio with kind of some of the values that you hold. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a couple ways to achieve that. I mean, there's the exclusionary aspect. You know, I don't want to own any companies that have exposure to X, whether that's firearms or tobacco or kind of more the impact side of things where you just want to tilt your portfolio towards a theme. Yeah.
1: So direct indexing, in other words, because of ESG, because of, you know, restricting some of these market exposures, it isn't just for taxable investors. It's really for all investors. Now, one thing is direct indexing has really been around for a few decades. Why is it becoming so hot now?
3: <clears throat> yeah, it's been around for a long time, but mostly in the institutional space. Um, just recently, as it has really kind of been democratized to be able to be offered to uh, kind of the financial advisors, retail client space you previously had to have, you know, 10, 15, 20 million dollars before you can have those conversations. Now you can do it with as low as $50,000.
1: That is a game changer. It's, it's almost fantastic. we need to almost say that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. I mean, because it has really been around for a long time, but I think it's because obviously technology, computational power is just exactly. so much better equipped now to handle all the calculations that go into all this work. Well, cool. Um, I'm sold. Done. Of course, that's I was already it, yeah. sold anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on direct indexing before the next topic? No, cool. I mean, I,
3: that covers it well.
1: Well, another thing which is which is kind of big is, and it's kind of related to the fact that technology has enabled us to do things that we really weren't able to do so easily a few years ago, is the idea of theme-based strategies or theme-based portfolios. Tell us about that yeah. and why, it's, why we should care.
3: Yeah, so, so theme, theme-based portfolios are taking an idea, um, whether that's uh, a factor like momentum or value, or um, the new economy, right? Yep. Um, things like, you know, 5G um, is popular now. And it's taking the idea of that kind of theme and using it as a building block within a portfolio. I view kind of themes as, as kind of a building block. And so some of your broader themes like factors can be considered core building blocks, right? This is how I construct my portfolio. This is how I'm gonna affect my portfolio. Um, and then you're more kind of um, segmented, like 5G or uh, blockchain. Those are can be more, you can consider those more like satellite blocks. right? It's my core block, so I'm building this portfolio for a client. It allows you to get very targeted, specific exposure.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing that all that direct indexing um, and theme-based portfolios really have in common is that it's a better... Investor experience, to kind of use that kind of that cliche investor mm-hmm. experience, because portfolios can be so much more personalized, and so it and personalized to what an investors' objectives are, what their values are, and um, and so obviously, just the way the investment industry has moved in recent years has just been a huge plus for investors.
3: Yeah, we're uh, you know we're moving towards that kind of mass customized. Um, solution for clients right i mean that's that's the ultimate client experience is something that's completely tailored to that client whether it's their financial plan or you know their values or um just unique to that you know um to that client and still being able to manage it efficiently i'm sure a lot of advisors and are out there thinking about you know i don't want to have a thousand different models right how can you efficiently manage that for a thousand different clients and be unique and still run it like it was in a model place.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, you're a risk manager, a quantitative portfolio manager. So, you know, you see that word now in front of portfolio manager all the time, quantitative. You know, again, how do you see that as different than a regular portfolio manager, at least in the traditional sense? And, you know, what skills and training do you think are required for this role?
3: Yeah, that's it's a great question, and um, I think the answer five six, seven years ago would be different than the answer today, and the answer in another five years is going to be different. And that's because I they're, they're really kind of merging. There's really not going to be much of a difference between a portfolio manager and a quantitative portfolio manager. Uh, yeah. Everything's moving quant, right? And, and really that difference is a, a quantitative portfolio manager generally um, focuses more on models, um, looking at the data, and building kind of systematic processes uh, around... Uh, portfolio construction and their investment process. Um, whereas you're historically a portfolio manager is going to read balance sheet statements, you know, do the fundamental analysis, use their experience, and, you know, it's not as systematized um, as it is today. And everything's just kind of moving to a more systemized, you know, math. There was a heavy math influence, heavy kind of uh, programming um, influence in order to kind of systematize it and really gauge how well your decisions are being made.
1: So, just kind of say it, so what if I was in college right now and I wanted to be a portfolio manager, which classes should I be taking?
3: Uh, I'm still a believer that you still have to take finance classes. I don't think that's ever going to change. You still need to have that kind of domain knowledge, but yeah. um, you'll, you'll start branching more into uh, some programming, some more of the math, um, you know, whether it's um, kind of linear algebra, Know, nothing too heavy like uh, calculus, but more on the on the. I've always felt like, like
1: on you just needed statistics about. and not much more. Yeah, would statistics, you,
3: would, probabilities. And that's after be that, a quorum, you don't need but, much yeah.
1: more. I would think. The programming is th- that that obviously is coursework. But you're right. One thing is you still need the the finance, you know, training.
3: Yeah, I'm still a big believer that you know. You can test as much as you want, but there has to be some kind of economic or financial um, theory behind it. Yeah. You know, other than that, if you're if there's not, then you're just data mining, and yeah. you don't know if that's going to persist or if it's really a value.
1: The intuition still needs to be developed and refined. You just yeah. can't come in it just looking at numbers. Again, I'm biased when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, any closing comments or any other things you want to say kind of about what you think where the future is going for investment management?
3: Yeah, I think it's it's going to continue to go around kind of that mass customization uh, for clients and really kind of tailoring the experience to to the client base. You know, we're seeing that trend, and I think that's going to continue to, to move forward. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks for your time today. All right. Thanks, Rusty. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Pretty good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts.
1: Stay balanced and stay the course.
0: We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.